0: Don't like my pledges? Well, I've got other ones. That's the message from Keir Starmer, who's dropped the 10 pledges he made in his Labour leadership election and replaced them with five completely different missions. But why should we trust him to stick to them this time around? And that's our main theme for this evening. We'll talk about the, the major speech, as they call them um, today. And I am joined by Sam Bright, UK Deputy Editor of Dsmog Smog. Um, welcome back to Nabarro Live. Um, do you want to explain to our audience what is is Smog? What, what, what do you guys do? So we mainly tackle climate
1: misinformation, and so um, I guess I had a you know quite a large eye on Starmer's climate change commitments in uh, his speech today. Um,
0: so maybe we could get onto that in a short while. Excellent, fantastic. I look forward to it. Um, also tonight we'll be discussing the Spy Cops inquiry and the growing demand for rent controls. Let's get going. It started with a question to the British public.
2: Seriously, ask yourself this. Do I feel better off today than I did 13 years ago? What's the list of achievements they can rattle off, the legacy of our country that they can be proud of? And the idea that the people who created the mess around us are the right ones to clean it up, forget it.
0: So sticking on that critique, or on the theme of that critique, most of Starmer's speech was focused on growth and the economy.
2: Economic growth is the oxygen for our ambitions, the lifeblood of a strong society and a successful economy. Higher living standards, better public services, more hope and opportunity. Without strong growth, these are just empty slogans. And let me spell it out. If growth over the last 13 years had been as strong as under the last Labour government, we would have £40 billion extra to spend on schools and the NHS without a single extra penny in tax. So let me announce the economic mission of the next Labour government. By the end of Labour's first term, we will deliver the highest sustained growth in the G7. Our mission on growth comes with a second yardstick. It must be powered by good jobs and stronger productivity in every part of the country. Every part of the country. (laughs) Judge us against that. The message to the British people is clear. Labour is the party of fair growth. Labour is the party of economic stability. Labour is the party of ambition.
0: So that was Starmer on Labour's pledge for growth. The speech also laid out a broader platform, though, which he says can be summarised in five missions. He explains them as follows.
2: Mission one, secure the highest sustained growth in the G7 with good jobs. Productivity growth in every part of the country. Growth that makes everyone, not just a few, better off. Mission two, build an NHS fit for the future. By reforming health and care services to speed up treatment, harness life sciences and technology, reduce preventable illnesses and cut health inequalities. Mission three, make Britain's streets safe by reforming the police and criminal justice system, preventing crime early, tackling violence against women and girls and stopping criminals getting away without punishment. Tough on crime, Tough on the causes of crime. Now, you've heard that before, but it's right. Mission four, break down the barriers to opportunity at every stage for every child, by reforming childcare, reforming education, raising standards everywhere, and preparing young people for work and for life. And five, yes, we will make Britain a clean energy superpower. And these missions, these five missions, will form the backbone of the Labour manifesto, the pillars of the next Labour government. They will be measurable, so we can track progress and be held to account. Long term, so we can look beyond the day-to-day. Informed by experts and the public, so we can build a coalition for change. And each will support our drive for growth. Each will help us get our future back.
0: Let's have a look at those five missions in graphical form. So we've got secure the highest sustained growth in the G7. That one is quite ambitious. Build an NHS fit for the future, rather vague. Make Britain's streets safe So the party of law and order. Break down the barriers to opportunity at every state, a sort of vague commitment to education. And make Britain a clean energy superpower. My response to Starmer's speech is often, can I muster any strong feelings about this? And that's going to be my question to you, Sam. Have you managed to muster any strong feelings about any of Starmer's five missions? I think I had a five-minute nap. Why um, <laughs> you
1: played those clips? I mean, I think, like you say, the, the G7 one, that's uh, having the, the longest sustained growth in the G7. That is ambitious. And I do slightly feel that he's creating a, a rod for his own back on that one. Um, but then again, I, I'm sympathetic to the argument as well that um, we've had chaotic government over the last few years, and maybe what people want is a bit of is a bit of boredom. Um, I think, though, you know, the, the devil will be in the detail of all of this. You know, the the climate stuff, obviously, his last pledge, you know, about creating a clean energy superpower. Now, Labor's Labor pledged a few years ago now uh, to invest nearly thirty billion in um, capital spending on on green technology. Um, but we haven't really seen any substance to that yet. And we're getting closer and closer to the election. Um, and Starmer still seems to be speaking in sort of vague terms about all these things. And that's my big concern, I think.
0: I think the vagueness, to some degree, seems to be a strategy, right? I think the more specific they are, the more they can be attacked on. They, they want to keep things vague because they think that the only people who are going to read into the details are probably the people who are trying to find holes in it. I think there's some sense to that. But I mean, you said, I suppose you said you had, you know, some quite strong feelings. I'm, I'm looking for strong feelings about this speech. I'm really um, stabbing in the dark for them. Uh, you said, at, lo- at least on the environment, you know, you've got some strong opinions. You talked there about, you know, they've pledged this £30 billion. They haven't quite said what they're going to do with it. I mean, I suppose taken as a whole... Labour in opposition. How confident are you as to what they would do were they in power? What are the signals we're getting that are positive? What are the signals we're getting that might worry you? One of the positive things that I took out of this speech and I've taken out
1: of Labour recently is this fair growth idea, um, and I, I think it speaks to my my sort of my worries as well um, in the on levelling up and devolution and really empowering. Regions um, and, and on democratic reform as well, in terms of you know getting rid of the House of Lords and creating a fairer system, etc., etc. Um, Labour have been fairly good recently. Gordon Brown obviously produced a report recently that Labour essentially endorsed. Um, I chatted to Lisa Andy a couple of years ago, and she was she said to me that she didn't really think that we could bring about levelling up by changing structures, by changing systems, and that really worried me because this is yeah you know, this is fundamental this goes to the core of britain its economy over the past 20 30 years and our constitution um and now she's saying that absolutely we've got to reform the way in which british politics works um yeah my my big concern is you know are they going to row back from that um are they going to implement the sort of the core change that that we need to see on 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 um the economy to make sure that and it's a difficult task. We haven't seen governments do it despite pledging to do it like Boris Johnson did um, to level up the country, you know, provide for Britain's regions and nations. We haven't seen it. So Labour genuinely needs to be radical on, on that front and not to um, you know, placate the master, masters of industry um, where that's concerned.
0: And placate the owners of the Murdoch press. Well, I suppose the, Mur- the owners of the Murdoch press are Murdoch, but own the, the, the owners of the corporate press. As is often the case, the elephant in the room whenever Starmer comes up with a bunch of pledges is that we've been here before. Just three years ago, Starmer came up with 10 pledges to the Labour membership and he went on to break them all. He was asked about that after his speech today. This was his reply.
2: When I stood for leadership of the Labour Party, I ended every single hustings by saying, everything you've heard today won't happen if we don't have a Labour government. And therefore, the single uh, absolute mission has to be to get a Labour government. And that's the basis on which I was elected in. Um, and um, the vast majority of Labour members and supporters are 100% behind what we're doing. They really like these missions and they want us to put them into action and to do what I promised when I stood as leader, which is to take our, our party from the worst general election defeat since 1935 into a Labour victory, into a Labour government. They desperately want that because that's the whole point of the Labour Party, to form a Labour government to change lives.
0: I don't think we have particularly good you know, polling on this, but one reason Labour members might be um, very much in favour of Keir Starmer is because all the ones who weren't got kicked out or who left because they were scared of getting kicked out. How much do you think this matters, the idea that he did give 10 pledges to the Labour members and then he broke them? I mean, he he says it's because circumstances changed, makes him look pretty shifty. At the same time, I think he's hoping no one cares what he told Labour members in 2020. Where do you stand on this?
1: I think the authenticity matters in modern politics, uh, especially when you're running on an anti-sleaze ticket. Um, I'd say he's probably helped, though, by the Conservatives, and particularly Boris Johnson's era in Downing Street, where he flip-flopped every five seconds. So no matter what Starmer does, he's always going to be better than the opposition on this front. I I say that my main concern is not not necessarily the flip-flopping, because I do understand that political circumstances change, et cetera, et cetera. People do change their minds. Um, And you have to be expedient to some extent. What I'm more concerned about is that his main pledges for the Labour leadership were really quite good um, in many regards, and he's adopting some pretty NAF policies in my view now. he spoke today about um, that he doesn't care whether public services are run by the state or by the private sector. He just cares how they work. Now, outsourcing has failed. It, it has unequivocally failed over the past 13 years. We've handed multi billion pound contracts to firms during the pandemic. And what happened? We had one of the highest death rates in the developed world. We've handed immigration detention center contracts to massive corporate giants, and they've been investigated multiple times um, for abuses. And so I think the outsourcing point goes fundamentally to the way, the w- the way in which the state operates. And that's one way that you know, he's really watering down what he's saying. I think ultimately, it'll be to the detriment of uh, the people who, who he wants to
0: serve. I think the pledge he's dropped that I think is the silliest to have dropped is that in his leadership election, he said that he would increase taxes on the top 5%. And to me, that's what's missing from all of these speeches. Because all of the speeches, I mean, people call them technocratic and managerial. And I think that is correct. And it's because he doesn't state any losers. Like normally in politics, if you want to make something happen, you know, and you have to take a stand against something or someone, as well as having your vision of nice things. So... Unless you say, I want these nice things and we're going to tax the rich to get them, I don't really believe you. Because I don't think moving around the deck chairs in Whitehall, you know, like forming a new committee here or bringing in a new ideology of, um, you know, public, private cooperation, you know, all of this sort of managerial speak, I don't really believe it unless you tell me loads more money is going to go into the NHS, loads more money is going to go into education, loads more money is going to go into industrial policy. And we're going to pay for this by taxing the rich. Unless you say that it it, to me just sounds like words, you have to say who is going to lose, who is going to win. And, you know, to my mind, this is why the 2017 manifesto was very good. Who was going to lose was the super rich, who was going to win was everyone else. And Keir Starmer seems unable to say that, so it does just end up with these very forgettable. Um, we will do this. We will. We will. I suppose a bunch of aims, right? It's a bunch of quite vague aims without telling you how you're going to get there, because all he can offer is managerial speak. Now, as he, he's 26 points ahead in the polls, Labour at the moment. So I think he'd probably say to me, "Look, you y- you tried your strategy. We're trying our strategy, and we're we're ahead in the polls. Fair play. But if you get elected on a platform where you..." you haven't said you're going to tax the rich and then you try and do it, that's going to be problematic for you because you're going to be told you're you're, you're dishonest. Um, it's going to be very very easy, actually, for sort of troublemakers in your party or in the Lords to say, we don't we don't want to allow this, you're, you're conning the British people. And if he gets into power and doesn't increase taxes, then I don't know how he's going to fund all of this because he said he's not going to borrow for day-to-day spending. He's also very reluctant to commit to taxing the rich. So where's the money going to come from to do this because he keeps saying we'll we'll get there via reform, but you can't get that you can't get there via reform unless we give the NHS a lot more money. You aren't going to make it fit for the 21st century unless you give education a lot more money. You aren't going to remove the the inequalities and barriers that stop people from all um, you know parts of society succeeding. So he needs to tell me that story for it not to just sound like words, but. As I say, my my big issue with this is always, can I muster some strong feelings? I have to say, I didn't muster many strong feelings um, listening to his five missions. Maybe there are some people in society who did. I find it somewhat implausible um, that anyone would have been particularly inspired by that speech. But there we are. Next story. Between 1968 and 2010, undercover police officers are believed to have infiltrated over a thousand mostly left-wing groups. Acting on behalf of the state, some of them formed close and even intimate relationships with activists without ever disclosing that they were cops. A few of those relationships even resulted in children. In 2013, Channel 4's dispatches spoke to some of the women who had been deceived. This is Helen Steele, who was an activist with London Greenpeace in the 1980s. That's where she met a man called... John Barker.
3: Around about 1987, I started going to uh, London Greenpeace meetings. That was, London Greenpeace was campaigning on environmental and social justice issues. They believed in do it yourself politics. And I think it was not long after that that actually this guy, John, turned up. His name was John Barker. He had a van and he used to offer to drive people home after the meetings, which at the time seemed like a very helpful. Uh, thing to do but actually is a, a very effective way of finding out where everybody lives. I was usually the last person to be dropped off and then over time we just became closer and we, we started an intimate relationship. John talked to me about how he really loved me and he wanted to spend the rest of his life with me, um, you know, we talked about over time we talked about having children together Um, living together forever I really felt I wanted to spend the rest of my life with him and I was really pleased to have found somebody who wanted that kind of relationship and seemed to care about me.
0: It would turn out that John Barker was an undercover cop when his assignment was over he disappeared from Helen's life. Another woman spied on was a member of the Animal Liberation Front, though she claims to have played only a peripheral role in that group. Um, Jackie, a pseudonym, began a relationship with a man she knew as Bob Robinson.
4: First time I met Bob was outside Hackney Town Hall. He lived in Highgate and he said he worked by doing bits and pieces, a bit of landscape gardening, a bit of tree surgery is how he described it. Said he was a committed anarchist. Could see he was a bit older, quite a bit older than me, but he was very charming. Very charming. It was only after a couple of meetings, I suppose, I was, I was smitten. I made no secret of the fact that I really wanted a baby, and um, his first reaction was no. We didn't talk about having a baby or anything, probably for a couple more months, and then I kind of said to him that I didn't know whether me and him had a future, if he never wanted children. And during one of these conversations, he said, okay, then we're, we'll give it a go. We'll give it a try. And I said, you know, this is, this is proper commitment. And he said, yeah. And I got pregnant the first month and we properly tried. Bob was there. He was, um, you know, holding my hand, willing me to push. You know, just just being what what would you expect? really excited. Um, And when I had my child, he he asked if he could cut the cord. He held him, and then he kind of said to me, "Well done," and kissed me, and told me how much he loved me.
0: Unknown to Jackie, Bob, like John, was an undercover cop. And Bob had a wife and two children in his real life. Soon after the birth of their son in 1985, Bob disappeared. Helen and Jackie told dispatches the impact the spy cops had on their lives.
3: The whole thing really destroys your sense of trust because it makes you really question about whether, if someone can act that well, can you, can you believe what is going on in front of you now? It makes it very, very, very hard to form kind of close and loving relationships. For my body to be used to gain
4: um, intelligence on a protest group. Yeah, I feel like well, I was raped multiple times, wasn't I? It's like being raped by the state. And. I just, I want it it all to go away, and it doesn't. It doesn't go away. And the thing is, I'm going to have Bob Lambert in my life for a long time, because he's the father of my son.
0: Just so appalling to watch, just so, so upsetting. After stories of the spy cops began to emerge in the 2010s, the then Home Secretary, Theresa May, ordered a public inquiry into the scandal in 2014. That independent judge-led inquiry into the conduct of undercover police officers is now reaching the end of its first stage. It's chaired by retired Judge John Mitting. The focus so far has been on the activities of a Met police unit called the Special Demonstration Squad, or STS. They operated between 1968 and 1982. The group infiltrated trade unions, anti-apartheid groups and environmental activists. And they're also accused of covertly surveilling the families and friends of protesters who had been killed by the police. David Bar KC is the Inquiry's lead counsel. In his summary of the broad conclusions of the first stage, he said this. Officers became involved in the lives of those they were spying on. Although they were not ordered or encouraged to do so, in some instances, this went as far as sex. Reporting was extensive, unfiltered, deeply personal, and often recorded in unprofessional terms. We cannot rule out that some of it, once filed, was leaked to the private sector and misused to blacklist activists. The whole operation was secret, and a very high priority was accorded to keeping it that way. Courts were sometimes misled, miscarriages of justice occurred as a result, an officer whose cover was compromised was told to pretend that he was acting independently, discipline was not enforced, aspects of deceased children's identities were used even though they added only a limited further protection. And was all this covert intrusion into the lives of members of the public worth it? Well, David Barr goes on, These operations have caused a lot of harm. Democratic freedoms have been infringed. Outrage and pain has been caused. The primary reason for conducting these operations was to gain intelligence to assist police to maintain order on the streets. However, the level of threat posed to public order was often not commensurate with a need to deploy undercover police officers for this purpose, not in the way that they operated. The benefits which the unit's intelligence brought to public order policing do not, in our submission, justify the means. The inquiry also heard that these operations were carried out with the knowledge of senior police officers, as well as the security service, the home office and the cabinet office. Charlotte Kilroy Casey is representing 25 women who were unknowingly in sexual relationships with undercover police. In her closing submission, she said this. When they unlawfully interfered with the public's long-standing constitutional rights, the Metropolitan Police also took the misogyny which riddled and corrupted the entire organization and transported it directly into the private homes and private lives of women. Instead of choosing officers who would respect the women they encountered, and instead of taking all necessary precautions to counter the obvious risk of sexual relationships, both the Metropolitan Police and the men sent into their lives had contempt for them. She went on to say this. Women were used casually by the undercover officers according to their personal preferences to maintain cover, gain access or obtain information. Two of those undercover officers were described by their own colleagues as sexual predator and a carnivore. The first stage of the inquiry is expected to report later this year. Hearings for the second stage, looking at the period between the 1980s and 2010, will resume in 2024. Tom Fowler. Is host of the Spy Cops Info podcast, and he's been following the inquiry closely. I spoke to him earlier today, and began by asking him what kind of testimony the inquiry has been hearing.
5: So, this last sort of set of hearings was just the closing statements. But over the last couple of years, uh, last about three years now, uh, we've heard from a number of former undercover officers and their managers as well as individuals who they spied on. Um, everything so far has related to the period 1968 to 1982. So it's all been quite historic. Uh, so a lot of the former undercovers are long retired um, and obviously, you know, have used that sort of as a part of their defence of not remembering it was a long time ago, you know, all that sort of thing. But it's been put to them, you know, they've been asked about all the things that they they got up to, um, you know, about, Way that they stole dead children's identities to to build their legends um, about you know the way that they like spied on children, deceived women into sexual relationships. Um, it was one of them, Vince, Vincent Harvey. Um, Vince Miller was his cover name. Was pressed on that, um, and you know, kind of basically had to admit on in front of us all that yes, he you know he had deceived her, and no, of course she would have never have consented to having sex with me if she knew who I really was. Does the fact that this Part of the inquiry relates to yeah that quite historic period. So it's going to
0: be the next tranche, which brings us up closer to the you know, the present day. Th- does that historic nature take away some of the sting? Does it feel like people are talking about something which was in the distant past?
5: I think it could easily feel like that for people. I think because um, obviously the people, lots of the people who are affected have come along to some of the hearings, um, particularly like Celia Stubbs, who was the partner of Blair Peach, who was murdered by police in April Twenty third, nineteen seventy nine. Her being in the room, uh, I think, changes the dynamic quite drastically when you're at the hearings, um, particularly because it's the police line on it is still so incredibly offensive. Obviously, you know, there's a lot, a a large amount of time has passed, but in terms of the like, these are people's lives we're talking about, and these are pretty, you know, serious things that have happened to them, um, and it's changed their lives for good. So. Yeah, the, I would say the sting is still definitely there for for those who it's affected by, and you can't help but feel empathy for those people. You know, when you're in the room with them.
0: Could you talk about that Blair Peach case? So he was a protester that was killed by the police, if I understand it correctly. Well, how has that case come into the inquiry? What was the offensive line that the police gave?
5: Blair Peach was a New Zealander. Uh, he was uh, living in in London. He was working as a school teacher. He uh, attended a demonstration against the National Front at Southall, um, uh, where they were having like some sort of town hall meeting. Um, this was at a time when you know there had been a series of very violent incidences that had be either been like carried out by the National Front or inspired by them. Their supporters had carried out. Uh, so there was tensions running high at the time. Uh, he was murdered by a group of six members of the Special Patrol Group uh, who were using homemade coshes. Um, he was beaten to death in the street where he bled out and died. Following his death, uh, the spy cops, the, the uh, members of the special demonstration squad, were tasked to monitor both uh, his partner, Celia Stubbs, and the Friends of Blair Peach campaign, which was seeking justice. Um, they sent nearly all the undercover, you know, a large number of undercover officers to the funeral, uh, which was heavily surveilled, um, a large number of people whose files um The the, the registry files which Special Branch maintains on political activists the photo in them is them from the funeral Uh, actually the other day we saw for the first time the um, video footage that the police had taken of the funeral was shown for the first time Celia Stubbs without warning was shown only a couple of days ago the the footage of her at the funeral which was quite distressing Um, the police always maintained this was just some sort of anti-police campaign there's no recognition that somebody had lost a loved one that You know, know, lots of people lost a friend, a colleague, a comrade. Um, And, yeah, they they were uh, monitoring, they were were, uh, spying on her and, you know, anybody involved in that campaign and any sort of protests that happened around it, none of which ever got, you know, one of the the justifications of deployment of the special demonstration squad is dealing with public disorder. Uh, There was no public disorder around any of the protests that um, the Friends of Blair Peach campaign held, which was just tended to be memorial events rather than, Protests as you might otherwise understand them that carried on until fairly recently. I mean, it was only 2010 that the Cass report that actually named the six officers who were who were, came out of the van and and bludgeoned Blair Peach w- w- were named. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, it, particularly offensive when some of these uh, spycops managers were questioned in one of the last sets of hearings of the inquiry um, with Celia in the room with a number of people who had known Blair Peach in the room. You know, just dismissing out of hand when it was put to him that you know people were hurting, people were upset about the fact that he'd been killed. Just didn't recognise it whatsoever. They were just it was a, it was left-wing activists who seen an opportunity to have a go at the police. And that that's all they saw it as. And they did their their, their best, uh, like they always do, uh just to protect the institution, protect the, the the police as individuals and as an institution. The case is sort of under investigation or, or you know the subjects of the
0: inquiry, let's say, um are pretty shocking. You know, you've got police sleeping with um, people they're spying on as you're talking about there you've got the police spying on grieving families people who were grieving after they were killed you know after their loved ones were killed by the police all quite shocking stuff is there any admission from any of the police being interviewed or giving evidence that something wrong was going on is there any admission from say the higher-ups that yes there was was a structural problem with with policing in the years that this investigation is covering or are they all basically saying still nothing to see here
5: i mean mostly they're saying it was all a very long time ago and it would be wrong to judge events of the 1970s by modern standards that's the general go to whenever comes to sort of like you know some sort of reflection uh, certain officers have shown some remorse about the fact they stole a dead child's identity just to be clear they didn't just take the name of a dead child for their legend they would go and visit where the child where the person who died in childhood um, would have grown up, what school they would have gone to, where they might have gone to work, you know, they've, they uh, spy on the family just to get an idea of, like, kind of what that person would be like so it would fit in better. Um, so some some officers showed some remorse about that. I mean, plenty of officers have just been incredulous and angry that, you know, that the families have been told that this had happened to them, Uh, you know. So, like, you know, there's a real mix. Certain officers have, you know, accepted that what they did was wrong, um, but they've explained it away, you know, whether it's, I was just following orders. Or it was government policy. Um, but there's no real sort of recognition that this was, I mean, the, the wider issue beyond the like individual misdeeds, you know, the, the, the sexual abuse, the, um, the trampling all over the day, graves of the dead children. Um, just the, the, the systemic uh, suppression of democratic dissent in this country, you know, it, like there's no recognition that in any way that that was an issue or a problem by any of the officers or their managers.
0: Where's this inquiry going? What powers does it have? Do you feel sort of like the, are you you confident the truth is going to be revealed? Will anyone be held to justice? Are the victims sort of suggesting they feel this
5: inquiry is doing its job properly? The idea of this inquiry is to get to the truth and make recommendations. Um, By its very nature, it's going to be making recommendations about doing the job of undercover policing better, theoretically. So I'm not really holding out much hope for what comes out of the the, the final report the inquiry produces. In terms of the truth, I mean, the truth is, is such a massive thing, right, that we just get little droplets. Um, when we started this process, when people first became aware that there were a secret undercover political police embedded within every single type of protest group in the UK, um, we were kind of considered conspiracy theorists. So I think for a lot of us, just being able to make sure it's part of the historical record as opposed to like a fringe theory is a success in itself. Um, and so much of the inquiry is about doing that. It's about nailing it down to dates and places, you know. It's about getting the the documents. It's about um, looking at the files, about seeing the reports that were written by these these undercover officers. So, you know, the usefulness of it, I think there's, there's a tremendously large amount of usefulness to it, whether that, I mean, that goes nowhere near any kind of, like, justice or, you know, like, there's not going to be anybody truly held to account. We've had a number of... Um, convictions of people who um, were convicted alongside undercover officers who used their false identity in court and their uh, uh, private privilege, the uh, lawyer privilege was, was breached. They've had their uh, their convictions overturned. I think there's a lot more of that to come. I don't think we'll get even a, a small percentage of those miscarriages of justice addressed, but that's there's some amount of that. So, I mean, that's that's a worthwhile thing in itself. Beyond that, there's, I mean, it's there is there is a certain element of satisfaction in finally getting to put into the dock, if you like. Though it, it's it's this is an inquiry; it's not a um, it's not a criminal or civil case. So there's no it's not an adversarial; it's an inquisitorial process. Um, but you know, having the uh, former undercover officers questioned and made to sweat essentially um, has its rewards in itself, if you know what I mean.
0: To give us a bit of a preview of the second tranche of, of this inquiry, what, what can we expect when, when that resumes?
5: So it'll be quite different, I think, in the next tranche. Um, up until now, pretty much all the records were handwritten, uh, badly photocopied, poorly stored. We're looking at, like, page three of an NCR set. So, you know, they're really, like, quite difficult to to decipher in some cases. As we go into the 1980s and the 1990s, which is the next tranche we'll cover, um, the records should be... There should be less bits missing as well, so we might get a fuller picture. Um, we we'll be, You know, that period will cover things like the miners' strike. Um, there's obviously, I mean... You know, this process started in 2014 when Theresa May, when she was Home Secretary, announced the Undercover Policing Inquiry. Um, We've just got to the end of 82. So it gives you an idea of how long and how slow this whole process is. Supposedly, the inquiry, like, assures us that things will be moving quicker when we come back to Tranche 2, which won't be until next year. Um, But we kind of hope that also there'll be more living former officers. Um, We'll be looking at uh, officers like Bob Lambert, whose activities, um, you know, are are particularly shocking. He was the author, one of the authors of the Tradecraft Manual. Um, He was somebody who fathered a child he then abandoned. Uh, He was the person who firebombed Debenhams. Um, He then went on to uh, co-author the Prevent strategy, um, set up the Muslim Contact Unit, um, have a successful career as as an academic before being... Uh, and masked as an a former undercover police officer. Uh, I think there's there a lot more shocking things, a lot more people's lives, uh, a lot more people realise that they were affected. I think one of the issues, as you were saying earlier, about how long ago this this tranche has been, that so many people who are affected don't even know or just don't want to even go there. I think as we get closer to the modern day, we'll find a lot more people who are bothered about it and will be coming forward.
0: That was Tom Fowler of the Spy Cops Info podcast speaking to me earlier today. If you want more info on Spy Cops, we've linked Tom's site in the description box below. Moving on. Home Secretary Suala Braverman has sat down for a very soft interview with GB News. She was asked about the protests against asylum seekers in hotels, including the one that took place just under two weeks ago in Knowsley.
5: In light of those uh, small boat incidents, we've seen protests now around the country, increasingly in Liverpool, in, in Rotherham, protests planned in, in Newquay, Uh, in the West Country. Some have been calling in the media those protesters against asylum seekers, perhaps some people will call them, illegal immigrants, others would call them. Some have said that those protesters are far right. Is that a fair characterization of those protesters?
6: Well, what I would say firstly, is that violence is never acceptable. And intimidation, harassment, uh, any forms of abuse to anybody uh, are totally, Uh, should be condemned and I condemn them in the fullest possible terms and it's clear that we have an unsustainable situation in towns and cities around our country whereby, because of the overwhelming numbers of people arriving here illegally and our legal duties to accommodate them, we are now having to uh, house them in hotels. And that is causing understandable tensions within communities, pressures on local resources, and is frankly unsustainable. So you
5: support those protesters?
6: I, I, I very much understand people's frustrations with hotels being occupied by large numbers of illegal immigrants or asylums.
5: So what do you make of a leader of a council in Cornwall calling such protesters who are planning a protest in Newquay abhorrent racists and bigots? Is that fair?
6: I, I, as I said, I think anyone contemplating violence, harassment or intimidation uh, should uh, should desist from doing that. It is not an acceptable way to voice your concerns or frustrations. We are all frustrated with the situation that we are currently finding ourselves in. And uh, and you know, it, is, it is clear and undeniable that there are uh, really, really serious pressures on communities and saying so does not make you racist or bigoted.
0: Saying so doesn't make you racist or bigoted, but gathering outside a hotel full of vulnerable asylum seekers and then accusing them of being rapists, that does make someone a racist.
1: It strikes me that going out on the street and uh, shouting at asylum seekers is is usually one of the hallmarks of the far right. Um, so to see the Home Secretary, someone who's in charge of not just the well-being of these people, these asylum seekers, but in charge of law and order in this country, saying that is... Another, another low point um, in the modern history of the Conservative Party on this issue. I mean, the fact is as well that she talks about asylum and these, asi- these hotels that asylum seekers are being put in as the major cause of the problem. <laughs> Whose fault is that? Um, since the start of the pandemic, the number of asylum seekers in hotels in this country has increased tenfold
0: because the government simply hasn't got a handle on this issue and i mean we've we've talked about this before on the show actually and we showed you actually that ian hislop clip and where he is essentially saying look yeah i mean putting lots of newly arrived migrants in hotels in poor areas in uh, around britain like that obviously is unsustainable that is going to cause tensions but the fault there as you say sam lies with the conservative government and what you'll hear there in in that soula braverman interview she says oh this is inevitable because of the the increase in the number of people who have started arriving well, what she never mentions is that the number of people who arrive in the UK compared to other European countries is very, very low. And they manage without putting people up in in hotels in, in, in poor parts of the country, right? So Germany took in more than a million Syrians in a year and they weren't shoved in hotels in poor parts of Germany while their claims took years to, to answer. No, they were put in houses with local people and they were integrated well, right? So it, it's not inevitable that you have these situations which do cause community tensions, if you put lots of newly arrived people all concentrated in single hotels. Suella Brafman's argument is that that doesn't justify violence, but it's still okay to be concerned. If you want to be concerned, fine. It's never justified to go stand outside a hotel full of asylum seekers and protest and call them rapists, right? That is far right. That is racist. That is disgusting. Whether or not you, you know, vandalize a, a police van. But yeah, this is completely conservative's fault. And I mean, as we talked about again on this show before, It is something which the Tories are actively, proactively, I think, intentionally stoking. They want to create community tension because it's a story they prefer to talk about than the collapsing economy which they have created over 13 years of misrule. Let's go on. Rents are crazy and getting crazier. That's why London Mayor Sadiq Khan, Greater Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham and the Mayor of Liverpool City Region Steve Rotherham have all called for a nationwide rent freeze in England and Wales. They've signed an open letter to Housing Secretary Michael Gove penned by the London Renters' Union. Joining them are the RMT's Mick Lynch, the CWU's Dave Ward and a variety of local mayors and councillors. The letter comes in the context of, frankly, ridiculous rent rises over the past year, as well as a deepening cost of living crisis. In London, rents rose 17.8% on average in 2022. In Manchester, Sheffield and Birmingham, they've gone up by as much as 20.5%. Introducing a rent freeze as well as a freeze on evictions would bring England and Wales into line with Scotland, when Nicola Sturgeon announced this last September.
7: In what is perhaps the most significant announcement I will make today, I can confirm to Parliament that we will take immediate action to protect tenants in the private and in the social rented sectors. Signing officer, I can announce that we will shortly introduce emergency legislation to Parliament. The purpose of the emergency law will be twofold. Firstly, it will aim to give people security about the roof over their heads this winter Through a moratorium on evictions. Secondly, the legislation will include measures to deliver a rent freeze. The Scottish Government does not have the power to stop your energy bill soaring, but we can and will take action to ensure that your rent does not rise. Presiding Officer, by definition these are temporary measures, but they will provide much needed security for many during what will be a difficult winter. We envisage that both measures will remain in place until at least the end of March next year. And crucially, I can confirm that we will time the emergency legislation to ensure, subject of course to Parliament's agreement, that the practical effect of this statement is that rents are frozen from today.
0: That scheme was later extended to September this year. The letter makes a strong case for protecting tenants from crisis capitalists, saying this, "'Renters are among the worst affected by the cost of living crisis. Prior to this crisis, renters were already spending four to five times as much as owner-occupiers on housing.' Yet landlords, with the encouragement of letting agents, are using this crisis as an opportunity to introduce rent hikes. In September 2022 alone, one million renters faced a rent increase. Renters are still desperately waiting for the ban on no-fault evictions that the government has been promising since 2019. Since last year, there has been a 121.1% increase in the number of households served a Section 21 notice. It comes as no surprise that 1.7 million households could become homeless in these colder But what about the poor landlords? I hear you cry. Uh, I I know this is a big concern of uh, Navarra Live viewers. Well, the letter has that covered too. Some landlords will be struggling with increased mortgage costs, but many will not generation rent research shows that just 11% of rent increases in 2022 were the result of higher mortgage rates. Just under half of rental properties have a mortgage and most of those have interest-only mortgages. The vast majority of landlords have far greater financial resilience to weather the storm ahead with the median annual income of landlords before their income from rent is taken into account at £55,000. In comparison, many renters are low paid in precarious work and have no savings or assets. Some landlords that are facing increased mortgage costs are trying to pass those costs on to renters that simply cannot afford it. The letter also calls for Michael Gove to fast-track the renters' reform bill delivering the Tories' manifesto pledge to abolish arbitrary Section 21 evictions. In response, a spokesperson for Gove's department said this. We recognise the pressures brought on by the rising cost of living, which is why we delivered £1,200 of direct support to millions of households last year, including £400 towards energy costs. And we'll be providing a further £1,350 of support to the most vulnerable households over the next year. Evidence shows rent controls in the private sector do not work, leading to declining standards and a lack of investment and may encourage illegal subletting. I mean, illegal subletting is really not the the big concern we have at the moment. Like if people are getting pushed out of the city they live in, the city they work in because they can't afford a 20% rent rise, if uh, an unintended consequence of a rent freeze is that some people start illegally subletting their houses, so what? I will take that. <laughs> I will take that risk if you can stop my rent getting increased by 20% next summer when I really can't afford that and my landlord definitely can, right? And I think what was really good about that letter is the way you know the letter from the London Renters Union is the way it sort of preempted all of those concerns and responses you hear from people who are against rent controls, saying, "Oh, well, this is just landlords who are trying to cover their mortgage costs." Well, mortgage costs have not gone up by the the extent to which rents have gone up, and you know, loads and loads of landlords own their properties outright, and you know what, landlords don't systematically say, "Oh, I know, I know, most people in this area are increasing rents because of their mortgage costs, but because I don't have a mortgage, I'll keep my my rents the same." No, landlords think, ah, if I can increase rents, I will. That just makes them richer and the people who are renting from them poorer. I mean they mentioned the estate agents as well. Estate agents often have a role here because they they call up various landlords and say, "I think we I think you're charging a below the market rent for your area. Maybe if you switch to us, and um, we can get you a higher income." So that's one of the mechanisms by which rents are pushed up. Also, I have to say, you know, good to see Sadiq Khan, Andy Burnham, Steve Rotheram all sign this letter. That's serious. Um, politicians saying, let's do this rent freeze now. Of course, Nicola Sturgeon, also a serious politician who's had a 12-month rent freeze in Scotland. It's time to do it. We can't wait any longer. More and more people are going to be made homeless. And I think even more people are going to be forced out of the cities they live in, out of the cities they love. Next story. Is there a single issue Keir Starmer hasn't changed his views on? You can send your answers in on a postcard. I'd be interested if you've managed to find one. Meanwhile, here's one more flip-flop to add to that ever-extending list. It concerns Shamima Begum. This is what Keir Starmer said in 2019 after Sajid Javid stripped her of her
2: citizenship. I think the decision by the Home Secretary was the wrong decision, and I think it was a rushed decision. Um, And I think it left out of account the interests of the newly-born child who's tragically died. I think the Home Secretary also should have really looked at what powers were available to him to deal with the case if it came back. Our terrorism acts are very wide-ranging now, so if you commit an offence in another country, you can be prosecuted back here in the United Kingdom, and I've done many of those cases. Alternatively, if there's not enough evidence, if she came back and there wasn't enough evidence to prosecute, you can also have a prevention order, which is where you can't prosecute, but you think measures are necessary. Because at the same time, a lot
6: of people have escaped prosecution, haven't they, who've gone to Syria and come back. It's been difficult to prosecute.
2: Well, they need to be assessed when they come back. Security and intelligence forces can do that, and they do do that, and they're very good at it. If there are offences, the mere fact that it was abroad makes no difference. You can be prosecuted here. But as I say, if on analysis... It was found there wasn't enough evidence. Um, the Home Secretary could then have said, well, what about a prevention order which limits uh, what an individual can do back in this country? So actually, had the interest of the child been taken properly into account, I think um, we would see that this was a wrong decision and a rushed decision by the Home Secretary.
6: Another former Director of Public Prosecutions, Lord mcdonald yes. uh, has spoken to The Observer this morning. We can have a look at something that he said about that decision. Uh, Mr Javid's behaviour is a recipe for refugee chaos and moral cowardice of the worst sort. Is he right?
2: Well, he's got a... Ken did a lot of cases, as I did, under the Terrorism Act. He knows exactly what can be done back here. I think uh, what he says is is right. I think, actually, the Home Secretary needs to come to Parliament tomorrow, make a statement on this and face questions. I think that's the right thing to do in the circumstances as they now are, because I think there is a growing feeling that this decision wasn't properly made, um, and the tragic consequences are now that a newborn child has died.
0: So that was pretty clear... Keir Starmer said stripping Shamima Begum of her citizenship was the, quote, wrong decision. Now let's fast forward to now.
3: I want
7: to ask you about Shamima Begum. In 2019, you said stripping her of a British citizenship was the wrong decision. She's lost her appeal to regain it. Should she be allowed to appeal again? Should she be allowed back here in order to face justice in the UK?
2: I think the court decision yesterday is the right decision. Obviously, the court has looked at all of the information, got all the evidence not only that was available at the time, but all the evidence that have, that's available since then, national security has to come first. Okay. The court's reached its decision. It's looked at all the evidence. I support that um, decision. And as I say, you know, national security has to come first. So that is a complete 180.
0: And I think also what was, I think, pretty shocking, actually, about that second interview from Keir Starmer is he's justifying his U-turn by essentially completely misrepresenting what happened in that court case. So we discussed that on on yesterday's show. And what the judge decided in that case was to say, actually, there is good reason to think that Shamima Begum was potentially trafficked. There is good reason to think that potentially she could have been brought back to the UK without causing a national security threat. But we as a court recognize that in the law, it is up to the Home Secretary to make that decision. So the court hasn't looked at all the evidence and decided the Home Secretary was right. Absolutely not. They've looked at the law and suggested the Home Secretary has the power to make that judgment. So it doesn't concern at all um, whether or not she should be brought back. So Keir Starmer is now using and misrepresenting a judgment to say, nope, I stand up for, for the judges and the judges have, set, have said she must stay in Syria. Now, the judges have not said that. The judges haven't looked at all the the information, all the evidence, and said she should stay in Syria. Actually, they've looked at all the evidence and said, to be honest, um, from our perspective, it looks as if potentially she could have been brought back to the UK, but it's not for us to determine. Um, This is the reserved right of, of the Home Secretary. Now, if Starmer is serious about government, he is soon going to be in government, and then the Home Secretary will be someone who works below him, right? So at that point, he can't hide behind the judges because the judges have said it's up to the government, it's up to politicians. Keir Starmer is saying now, oh, I don't want it to be up to me, I want it to be up to the judges. Well, they've said it's up to you, right? So you've got to give an answer as to what you would do. Um, Sam, what did you think of that clip? Oh, that was,
1: that was, yeah, I hadn't seen those compared side by side. I mean, looking at that first clip, he looked like he knew what he was talking about. Mm. And I feel as though people really want to be carried by their leaders, by conviction politicians who speak... Um, as though they actually know what they're on about. And he did that in the first clip. I don't see how it's damaging um, for him to maintain that line now. Um, it's perfectly plausible for me to to believe that the majority of the people would have believed what he was saying.
0: Yeah, I mean, I agree. he was quite convincing in that first clip. I sort of watched that and thought, yeah, he clearly believes what he's saying. In that second clip, Like he clearly didn't. It was clearly him doing politics. Um, and yeah, and misrepresenting what what the case was, which I thought was... You know, he, this, this guy was a human rights lawyer. Now he's trying to make out that judges are giving much more conservative and much more authoritarian rulings than they in fact are. Like that's precisely the opposite of what his job had been for the first part of his career. So, I mean, you know, flip, he, he flip-flops as a politician. He's flip-flopped in sort of his whole lifespan. One more story this evening. Environment Secretary Therese Coffey has some advice for people struggling to afford food. This is what she said in response to this question from Rachel Maskell.
6: Thank you Mr Speaker. With the ONS highlighting a 16.8% increase in food prices in the year to January, government has built its food poverty infrastructure with dependency on voluntary donations and and retail waste donations. However, due to demand, food banks in York are running out, eking out food supplies. For my part, I'm holding a citywide donation day so that those who can give and those in need receive. We call it York together as we support one another. However, what is the government doing to ensure that no one goes without? Well,
8: Mr Speaker, the Honourable Lady's right to praise the initiative in York uh, with her constituents. And I think that's very welcome. It is uh, an element of what can also be done locally. But, I, you know, we talk about aspects of food pricing. Inflation is really tough at the moment. There's no doubt about that. And I'm conscious though that we still have a situation where generally across Europe we have one of the lowest proportion of our incomes being spent on food. Uh, supermarkets have been very competitive. And uh, we may discuss some of that later. Uh, But I do want to encourage her to also work uh, within supporting the Household Support Fund. Uh, That is intended to go to people particularly in need. But of course, we do know that one of the best ways to boost their incomes is not only to get into work if they're not on work already, but potentially to work some more hours, to get upskilled, to get uh, higher income. Uh, But of course, uh, uh, the local welfare grant that was given some time ago now by central government to um, uh, local councils is there for them to use as well.
0: Sam, if you're struggling to afford food, work more hours or ideally get a better paid job, um, how, how, how do you respond? Brilliant. They've
1: diagnosed all our problems. I can see exactly why the, the economy has grown at the rate that it has over the past <laughs> 13 years. Well done, Therese Coffee. I mean, it's, yeah, it's ludicrous. We're at, full, we're at full employment anyway. Um, the fact is that we've got mass labour shortages. People aren't getting paid enough. Um, a ludicrous amount of people who are on universal credit and um, on benefits are in work, and for the for the government to parrot these lines, still, I think honestly, people have stopped have finally stopped believing it, and yeah, that's very welcome.
0: Oh, a, p- a positive note to end there. People have stopped believing it. Um, hopefully, the Tories will be out at the next general election. I keep seeing people, but uh, the, the, the comments are always divided between like, I hate Kirst Starmer, and do you want ten years more of Tory rule? And I suppose I, I sit somewhere in. in in between I want Labour to win the next general election don't particularly like Keir Starmer as I always say I want them to win one seat short of a majority and that one seat to be held by Jeremy Corbyn that's the that's the 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 outcome I really want when the next general election happens Um, Sam thank you so much for joining me this evening pleasure and thank you everyone for watching we're back tomorrow at 6pm for now you've been watching Navarra Media Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com/support.